My fellow Americans, I want to pay my simple tribute to the memory of Herbert Hoover. In August 1965, former President Dwight Eisenhower is at the Hoover Presidential Library in West Branch, Iowa. But Eisenhower isn't the keynote speaker. Mr. Hoover never forgot the people of the small town in which he was born. Former Vice President Richard Nixon begins with tributes to Hoover. Then Nixon addresses something unexpected. I believe it is time for the American people to quit being defensive or apologetic about our role in Vietnam. This is From the Archives, a podcast from Iowa Public Radio featuring recently rediscovered historic audio from our archives. On this episode, Richard Nixon makes the case for war. Too many seem to believe that we had no business getting involved in Vietnam in the first place. Two weeks earlier, Democratic President Lyndon Johnson increased the number of troops in Vietnam from 75,000 to 125,000. I believe it's time for all Americans to raise their eyes proudly to the great goals for which Americans are fighting in Vietnam. The first moments of the discussion of Vietnam, there is actually just silence. Historian Tim Neftali says the audience wasn't expecting this kind of speech. But when he says that the only way that countries can remain neutral is because of the beneficence of the United States, then people applaud. No nation could afford the luxury of neutrality if it were not for the power of the United States. In 1965, most thought Nixon's political career was done after he lost the presidential and California gubernatorial races. This speech would be his way of saying I'm back. This struggle will be long, but the reward will be victory over aggression in a world in which peace and freedom have a better chance to survive. Richard Nixon, as he stages a comeback that would eventually lead him to be the next president of the United States. On this episode of Iowa Public Radio's From the Archives, I'm John Pimple. services of this very great man. It's August 9, 1965. Former President Dwight Eisenhower is in West Branch, Iowa for an event celebrating the 91st anniversary of former President Herbert Hoover's birth. Now the message I have is from the President of the United States. Eisenhower reads a written message from current President Lyndon Johnson. Over the years of my friendship with him, I found President Hoover to be one of the wisest and most inspiring men I have been privileged to know. Hoover died the previous October. His body is interred here at the Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. Hoover often returned to Iowa on his birthday. This is the first birthday after his death. It's also the occasion to introduce a postage stamp bearing Hoover's likeness. I have several things in common with Herbert Hoover. The keynote speaker on this day isn't Dwight Eisenhower. That role goes to his former vice president, Richard Nixon. Nixon shares that he and Hoover were Quakers. My father was a Methodist from Ohio. My mother was a Quaker from Indiana. They both moved to California, met there, and were married. Then they compromised. They both became Quakers. (laughs) Nixon delivers many flattering remarks. We were privileged to have lived in the same century with this uncommon, extraordinary man. And as we meet in this typically American town, in the heartland of our country, 
May we honor his principles as we pay tribute to his memory. Hoover lost his re-election by a wide margin and for a time was not very popular. Nixon talks about how later Hoover was able to re-emerge with important roles, like leading famine relief efforts after World War II. No words can add luster to the special place he has earned in the heart of his countrymen. But let it be noted that for generations to come, his magnificence in adversity will be an everlasting example to those who would achieve greatness. But then Nixon's speech veers in a different direction. The highest tribute, after all, a nation can pay to one of its great men is to honor his principles in the adoption of its policies. And it is in that spirit that I would suggest that we test our policy in Vietnam against the foreign policy principles of Herbert Hoover. In the mid-1950s, a long civil war in Vietnam intensifies when communist forces take over the northern region. President Eisenhower provides aid to the southern leadership, but the number of U.S. military stationed there is only in the hundreds. In the 60s, that number increases to thousands. In August 1964, Congress grants Democratic President Johnson more war powers. This authorizes actions like Operation Rolling Thunder, a years-long bombing campaign of northern Vietnam. In July 1965, President Johnson increases the number of troops in Vietnam from 75,000 to 125,000. Two weeks after the surge, Richard Nixon is in West Branch, Iowa, delivering this speech. America's critics at home and abroad contend that we are increasing the danger of World War III. Nixon is a Republican and one of the first Republicans to publicly support the military campaign of a Democratic president. I believe it is time for the American people to quit being defensive or apologetic about our role in Vietnam. We can hold our heads high in the knowledge that, as was the case in World War I, World War II, and Korea, we are fighting not just in the interests of South Vietnam and of the United States, but for peace, for freedom, and progress for all peoples. Nixon says if the forces from North Vietnam aren't defeated, communism will spread across the world. The communists will have the green light for conquest by supportive revolution all over the world, and we will be helpless to stop it. He claims South Vietnam is an example of what could happen elsewhere. The communists do not have to be told that we are for peace. They have to be convinced that they cannot win the war. We shall agree to any honorable peace. But on one issue, there can be no compromise. There can be no reward for aggression. Forcing the South Vietnamese into a coalition government with the communists would be a reward for aggression. Neutralizing South Vietnam would be a reward for, for aggression. Forcing the South Vietnamese to give up any territory to the communist aggressors would be a reward for aggression. Nixon acknowledges it would be presumptuous to know what Hoover's position on Vietnam would be, but he cites various speeches from Hoover's past to draw a connection. Speaking at the Republican convention in Chicago in 1944, he said, We want to live in peace. We want no territory. We want no domination over any nation. We want the freedom of nations from the domination of others. The world is divided by opposing concepts of life. One is good, the other is evil. For the most part, this is a speech designed to drum up support for the war. Those who join the Viet Cong in Vietnam today do so not because they like communism, but because they fear it. 
In the past 12 years, the only nations in Southeast Asia and the Pacific which have enjoyed sustained economic progress are those in which freedom has been given a chance. There is a lesson in this record for America. At a time when other nations are turning toward freedom, let us in America not turn away from it. Over and over, he reinforces his belief that the United States must be involved in the conflict in Vietnam to save the world from communism. If the communist aggressors are not stopped now, the risk of stopping them later will be significantly greater. Too much of the discussion in Vietnam has been in the dreary terms of day-to-day -day tactics, of targets to be hit or excluded, of the cost involved. I believe it's time for all Americans to raise their eyes proudly to the great goals for which Americans are fighting in Vietnam. We are fighting for the right of self-determination for all nations, large and small. We are fighting to prevent the Pacific from becoming a Red Sea. To achieve these goals, Americans must be united in their determination not to fail the cause of peace and freedom in this period of crisis. Former Vice President Richard Nixon speaking at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library on a day dedicated to celebrating the late president. Richard Nixon's speech in West Branch, Iowa was a sign Lyndon Johnson would get Republican support for his war in Vietnam. Historian Tim Neftali says this was one of the first speeches indicating Nixon, a failed gubernatorial and presidential candidate, was trying to get noticed again. He is preparing to be a player, and he wants to be the spokesman for the Republican Party in foreign policy. Tim Neftali explains how this speech clearly signals the return of Nixon to the national political stage. Next, on Iowa Public Radio's From the Archives, I'm John Pimble. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In 1960, Richard Nixon was finishing his role as vice president during the two Dwight Eisenhower terms when he became the Republican presidential candidate. In November of 1960, after Nixon lost the election to John F. Kennedy, there were accusations of fraud. Tim Naftali is the former director of the Nixon Presidential Library. There was some pressure on Nixon to contest the results of the 1960 election. Kennedy wins the popular vote by two-tenths of a percent and a wider margin with the Electoral College. An effort to overturn the results in some states begins by Nixon's supporters, but the day after the election, Nixon concedes. And he says this publicly? And who calls him that night? Herbert Hoover reaches out to Nixon on the phone. And he says to Nixon, John F. Kennedy would like to meet with you. Now, why would Hoover have been making this call? Because Herbert Hoover and John F. Kennedy's father Joseph P. Kennedy were longtime friends. And the elder Kennedy and the elder Republican statesman Hoover wanted to patch up the country by getting the two candidates together in a photo op to end any dispute, any conversation, any fears or conspiracy theories about the election, to make it clear to the American people that once again, America would witness a peaceful transfer of power. 
1962, Nixon lost the California gubernatorial election in his home state. He gives a speech known as the last press conference where he announces he's done with politics. Nixon accuses the press of giving him the shaft and delivers the famous line, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Okay, that's not a good impression, but you remember that, right? By the time Nixon arrives in West Branch, Iowa in 1965, he's there to speak as an old friend and admirer of Herbert Hoover. In terms of public esteem, never has one man fallen so low and risen so high. Nixon's speech begins with a discussion about the highs and lows in a public career. 33 years ago, he left the White House, vilified by his enemies, forsaken even by some of his friends. Now, he's talking about Hoover, but when you listen to Nixon, Nixon's talking about Nixon. A lesser man would have lashed back at his critics. Nixon's speech starts with him really talking about himself, cloaked in references to Hoover. His serenity in the face of the most brutal attacks. Nixon had a hard time getting out of the Nixon mask. And allowed his fellow Americans to see even more clearly the great character of the giant who walked among them. Nixon was talking about how history will remember many people differently from the way they were treated in the press. And I believe he's thinking of himself. Now, he hasn't yet become president, and there's no question that um, that was the kind of thinking he would have in the 1970s. But how interesting it is that Nixon is using these kinds of uh, images to talk about peaks and valleys of a career in 1965. One of the reasons that the South Vietnamese have been willing to... Eight minutes into his speech, Nixon changes the focus to Vietnam, and he keeps it there for the remaining 20 minutes. The per capita income of South Vietnam under freedom is... I get the feeling that the audience in West Branch was surprised during a ceremony that was supposed to be dedicated to the life and achievements of Herbert Hoover. This is not a case of American intervention in a civil war. We are helping South Vietnam resist communist intervention. As Nixon pivots, there's not a lot of applause. We are fighting on the side of progress for the Vietnamese people. It is the communists who are fighting against progress. There is actually just silence. Stopping communist aggression will reduce the danger of war, and failing to stop it will increase the danger of war. That's not an applause line. We welcome the interest of the United Nations in seeking a setup. They do not applaud when Richard Nixon says that the United States will, will understand that some countries are neutral in the Cold War. We respect the views of nations who choose to remain neutral in the struggle between communism and freedom. But when he says that the only way that countries can remain neutral is because of the beneficence of the United States, then people applaud. No nation in the world today could afford the luxury of neutrality if it were not for the power of the United States of America. When he says to end the aggression, we need to engage in more airstrikes, he gets an applause line. I believe that at this time, we must continue to step up our air and sea attacks on North Vietnam until the communist leaders stop their aggression against South Vietnam. What's clear from this speech for me is that Richard Nixon knows he's gonna to try to be a national player again. This is not the speech of someone who's in retirement. If aggression is rewarded, those who advocate the hard line in Peking and Moscow will have won the day over those who favor peaceful coexistence. And we shall be confronted with other Vietnams in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. He still thinks 
that there's a domino principle that basically if one government goes communist, that the entire region goes communist. Actually, that's what would happen in Southeast Asia, but, but n- nowhere else. The noisy minority, which constantly talks of the need to make concessions to the communist... He uses the term noisy minority to mention the opposition to Vietnam. This kind of talk discourages our friends, encourages our enemy, and prolongs the war. In 1965, the American effort in Vietnam was very popular. He really is talking about a small group of Americans who were quite vocal in their opposition to the war in Vietnam. It doesn't take much of a rhetorical stretch to go from noisy minority to silent majority. The term silent majority, which he would create in 1969, it's a term, by the way, that lives on in our political lexicon and our political vocabulary. And he's trying to remind people that most Americans quietly support this. And, and I think perhaps he's asking them to be less quiet. This struggle will be long and the cost will be great, but the reward will be victory over aggression and a world in which peace and freedom have a better chance to survive. What happens when peace comes? Herbert Hoover's record gives us guidance here too. The man who hated communism. Nixon was talking about Vietnam And he admits that he doesn't know, and it would be presumptuous of him to know what Hoover thought about Vietnam. So the the, the Hoover connection was not 100%. Would be the establishment now of an American committee to aid the people of North Vietnam. But since Nixon included the idea of humanitarian aid, that's Hoover. Nixon proposes a program that would send food, medicine, and clothing to North Vietnam. Similarly, Hoover was involved with the Russian Famine Relief Act in the 1920s while he was the Secretary of Commerce. And if the government of North Vietnam raised objections to allowing an American agency to administer the program, the distribution of supplies could be undertaken by an independent agency like the International Red Cross. Certainly, a program of this type would be in the great humanitarian tradition of Herbert Hoover. This kind of aid to North Vietnam from the United States never came to be during the war. A crucial issue is being decided in Vietnam today. Tim Naftali says the majority of this speech was used as an opportunity for Nixon to support the Democratic president's escalation in Vietnam, although he does not cite Lyndon Johnson by name. When he's talking about Vietnam, he's not responsible for what's happening in Vietnam. We are fighting to save free Asia from communist domination. He has a certain freedom to talk about it because in a sense, nobody is linking Vietnam to his legacy. It's not his war. The LBJ escalation of July 1965 was a pivotal moment in this country's commitment to the war in Vietnam. And for Nixon's response to be the first full-throated response by a Republican leader outside of Washington was very significant. And in many ways, it became the Republican Party's response to the escalation in Vietnam, which meant that LBJ's policy did not have the scrutiny it should have had from the country's loyal opposition. We speak so often about the advantages of bipartisanship, and they exist, but sometimes bipartisanship prevents the kind of questioning that we always need of policy. And Richard Nixon's speech in West Branch, Iowa, was uh, a sign that 
Lyndon Johnson would get Republican support for his war in Vietnam when, frankly, the country would have benefited from questioning by Republicans as to the approach to the war and the effectiveness of the war and ultimately the consequences of the war for the U.S. economy, for U.S. standing in the world, and for, most importantly, the American people themselves. Tim Niftali is a former director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. He continues to conduct research about Nixon for the museum. Neftali has heard and read many of Nixon's speeches, but had not heard this one until we shared this recording with him from Iowa Public Radio's archives. On the next episode of From the Archives... My future in boxing, well, right now, is dead. In 1967, world champion boxer Muhammad Ali's boxing license is stripped away after he refuses to fight in Vietnam. He is arrested but released pending the outcome of an appeal to the United States Supreme Court. I don't think I'd have too much chance at fighting until this war is over, until the judge in the higher courts let me off. During Ali's three and a half years of career exile, he is considered one of the most hated people in America, but he finds support across the country on college campuses as he gives informal talks. I found it to be successful to let the people ask questions to me while I am here live in living color. On an Iowa college campus, Muhammad Ali explains how his religious convictions led to his arrest and uses his charisma to charm the crowd. From the Archives is a podcast exploring significant points in history that took place in Iowa through recently rediscovered recordings from Iowa Public Radio's archive. I'm your host, John Temple. Producing this series with me is Katherine Perkins, Caitlin Trotman, and Rick Brewer. Additional help comes from Matt Searin, Jordan Bonson, Dennis Reese, and Andrea Hansen. Funding comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Subscribe to this series and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. And share this episode on your social media feed. From the Archives is a production of Iowa Public Radio.